to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma, and I'm your host, Trish Gloss. Susan Lin on the podcast today. She's a master of wine and a master of fine arts in classical piano and musicology. I met this smarty pants, fabulous human a few weeks ago at the Oregon Wine Competition. She was one of six judges. We chatted briefly on her research of wine and music, and I said, I have to have you on the podcast. I need to know more. She grew up in the Bay Area. She says her love of music came from mom and dad. They were always playing music in the house. They loved listening to operas. In fact, she and her sister grew up playing the piano, one of Susan's favorite things to do, by the way. Her love of wine really started with grandpa, believe it or not. Grandpa was an incredible host. He loved bringing families together over dinner. And Susan remembers admiring these gorgeous bottles of spirits and wine. And she said, I had to know what was inside them. And really, grandpa was her first teacher. So Susan's taking this love of music and this new world of wine that she's learning about and loving and started to intersect the two. She was reading papers on how music affects our perception of what's in the glass. So she wanted to do her own experiment on music and champagne. So she talks about that research and she talks about that data. We totally nerded out over all of that. She says, really, though, when it comes down to it, what plays the biggest role in all of this is perspective. Here's Susan Lynn. You're joining today from San Francisco, right? Yes, the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm closer to Silicon Valley in the peninsula, but it's pretty much the same. Nice. Beautiful. <laughs> well, welcome, Susan Lynn, to the podcast. Thank you so Thank much you. for being here. I actually met you a couple of weeks ago at the Oregon Wine Competition that was held in Southern Oregon. Uh, my first time really behind the scenes of a wine competition, and I was blown away. It was your first time, really? You seem like such a pro. Because you are a pro. I was sweating. I was sweating. I was like, don't make any noise. Try not to get the camera too much in their face. But it was just so fascinating watching you guys go through uh, hundreds, hundreds of wine. Yes, yes. It's it's a really unique competition, too, the Oregon Wine Competition. Uh, Every single competition is different. And, you know, I try my best to do my research and to read up on everything and to try to understand, you know, what the goals are so I can bring everything that I can, you know, to to the competition and to further the goals of, you know, the, right. the raison d'etre of the event. And uh, I love the fact that it's really small, intimate, but really, really well um like spread out event, you know, in terms of the types of people, the personalities and where they come from and how we all meet up together and how we end up discussing the wines. And what an incredible experience for me being the first time uh, as a wine professional in Oregon and especially my first time in Southern Oregon. It was really eye-opening. And of course, the wines were very impressive, but more than anything else, it's the people that always um, makes you very, very uh, impressed and happy with the place. And so I was really excited to be able to meet people like you. It was such a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Um, and before we get too far, I have to brag about you just a little bit, smarty pants. You're a master of wine (laughs) at last count. There's nearly 420 around the world. Just to put that into perspective. Um, there's 56, about enough to do it. Yeah. (laughs) There's about 56 of you guys in the United States, masters of wine. So Okay. Correct. You also are a master of fine arts in classical piano and musicology. So you're a classical pianist, correct? Yes. Okay. That's Which right. is where where we're going to eventually lead this conversation, everybody. Wine and music, um, specifically really bubbles and, and music from what I've been reading. Um, 
You've done extensive research on the influence of music and wine, really how it changes depending on what you're listening to. I don't want to water it down too much. Really, um, I think I was reading an article how Brahms might make your wine taste better that you were featured in. So that's kind of the line. Yeah, that's kind of the line of thinking we're going. Um, Head of wine expertise for wine retailer, Belmont Wine Exchange in San Francisco. So all about wine, all about music. We're going to get into it. But Susan, we have to start with the beginning. Where are you from originally? I am from the San Francisco Bay Area, actually. Uh, I was born in Fremont, California. Uh, but my family, my family is um, originally from Taipei, my dad's family and my mother's family in Shanghai. But my parents actually met in Dallas, Texas as students. So it's kind of crazy because they actually lived in Taiwan at the same time, but never met each other. And they met in Dallas, Texas, while my dad was getting his PhD at Southern Methodist University. And my mom was getting her bachelor's at Baylor. Wow. And they met at a co-ed event and the rest is history. So, you know, and um, my dad got his PhD in electrical engineering and he got a job uh, um, in Silicon Valley at, at Xerox. Um, so that's how my sister and I ended up being born in California. Made, but, made in uh, California. I actually have spent, well, I'm sorry? You, you were made in California. I was made in California. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I have spent a lot of time um, as an adult actually um, living in, in Asia, first in Tokyo uh, for when I was working in semiconductors. And then uh, when I was working in software, uh, I was working for Google search and maps quality. Uh, I was uh, working in Beijing and traveling around in the Asia um, near near. Uh, the Far East Asia, actually working in those areas and spending lots of time there. So it was really great for me to be able to to actually, you know, learn about deeper uh, culturally and how people actually live their lives and how they perceive the world, you know, and the space around them and the things around them, how they live, eat, drink, all those things, mm-hmm. you know, it's very fascinating. And it's it's never never been the same for me, you know, being wherever I go, it's it gives you a different sense of perception. You want to be a little bit more open and say like, what, how do people, how do people see the world? And that's the most fascinating part, I think about learning anything and being alive in this world. For sure. Perspective is such a big, a big deal, right? Like just learning different people's perspectives and where they're from and how they grew up and that it's, you know, not different maybe it is different from you, but not when we really boil it down, it's not all that different, right? Indeed, indeed. But yet sometimes the nuances are really important because it's just not just how I see the world, but how do others see the world? And then my world can get bigger that way. We'll come to some sort of understanding, right? I think in a new situation, you know, if I'm going, especially if I feel like I don't really have my bearings, you know, it's really about listening between the lines or even watching between the lines, so to speak, looking at affect, if you don't understand everything that people are saying, or they don't understand what you're saying, and really trying to find a common ground. Mm. And uh, I think, you know, in terms of the performing arts and what growing up with that, um, learning uh, classical dance and, and music has taught me too, is that you can communicate so much without actually using intelligible language, right? There's it, it, through speech rather, but there's a language via the body, via, you know, what the things you can express that can resonate with others. And you can find a lot of common ground there, which is really, really fascinating to me. Yeah. I just, it just hit me that actually music and wine really, um, both can speak to people without using language, right? It's something that. Absolutely. Yeah. We all have in common. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, so you're fluent, right? 
with all your travels and Oh, yes. In terms of uh, uh, languages? Yes, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes, uh, Japanese and and um, Mandarin Chinese. And I can understand but not speak Cantonese, Chinese and Taiwanese very well, but I can mostly understand them. It's interesting because there are a lot of confluences between, mm -hmm. you know, like back in the day during the Tang Dynasty, 9th, 10th centuries, there was actually a lot of trade, you know, between, you know, the, uh, the Japan and Korean um, peninsulas and with you know China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, those areas, and so there's actually a lot of similarity between the languages um, in those ways. But yet grammatically, they are so different too, and there's so many differences. But sometimes I, I can understand some some Taiwanese because of the Korean that I know, and the Korean that I know is very basic, let me say. <laughs> but it's actually really neat when you start being able to pull threads, you right. know, from the different things that you know, and start start seeing you know how those things come together. And it's also the same in wines. You know, the way you, that you you start learning about one particular style of wine and another style of wine. And then, well, you see, well, Chardonnay is made all over the world, but it can be grown in so many different places, mm -hmm. so many different environments, so many different winemaking sensibilities. And yet you can find those main threads that pull together and say, like, why this is Chardonnay and why is this an interesting Chardonnay? And why does it make this Chardonnay from this place and this producer? Very interesting. Right. So what was it like growing up with Asian parents in the Bay Area? Is your sister younger or older than you? Older. Okay. So what was that like? Pretty typical? You know, I, I growing up, uh, I, I never really realized many things. And I think this is a shared experience for a lot of people who are, you know, with immigrant families, um, is that... Uh, you know, you don't realize certain things until you get older <laughs> that, you know, I mean, it was very true that in the beginning, there were some things, you know, that that some some kids would say to me and I didn't know what they meant, but it didn't feel quite right. You know, you get that again, that sense of energy and affect. Right. And then I would come home and I'd say, mommy, uh, somebody said this to me. Do you know what it means? And then she gets so angry. And then that's what I would start learning, you know, right. what some of these things and 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 actually it was to her credit too that she would understand what some of those things were she's very good with language and she's really good at learning and picking things up um i'm not sure my dad would have understood some of those things at that point because he's so scientific he's so analytical he's so very much in his world which i love that i love that between my parents it really creates a wonderful um a dichotomy and a harmony in a way so Absolutely. growing up with that i feel very fortunate but you know my parents tried their very best to to assimilate and have my sister and I assimilate. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they didn't actually send me to Chinese school or anything that a lot of people do now. I didn't go to, you know, um, to bilingual classes or anything like that, but I did, you know, we learned through uh, those around us. And so I did pick up a lot of Chinese, but it wasn't until actually that I graduated from university and I started working in semiconductors and we had a merger or between um, a Japanese company. And I said, I should really try to, to, to make an effort to learn Japanese so that we're not those just the typical Americans who expect everyone to speak English, right. um, to try to pull teams together and say, I'm making an effort. I want us to work together. And I learned Japanese well enough to read and write and start really doing that. And I was like, I don't read and write Chinese. This is 
this is not cool. <laughs> so, so I made the effort to, to really learn that too. And I have to say, I don't encourage anyone to try to learn how to read and write Chinese and Japanese at the same time. Because <laughs> they say in French, there's a lot of faux amis, there's false friends because of the similarities and other things. But, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me. And that's the way I wanted to do it. So I did it that way. And, uh, and I, I absolutely am so happy, so happy that I did that because well, yeah, now, you know, and yeah. Don't worry yeah. about me learning to read and write Chinese and Japanese at the same time. Okay. So yeah, you can, <laughs> I'll leave that up to you. So impressive though. So impressive and good on your mom for, um, having those conversations because kids are mean and they can be mean. And so good on your mom for having those conversations like, Hey, that's not okay. That's not a nice thing to say. And, but at the same time, really assimilating you and your sister, kind of pushing you, right? Because it would have been super easy to maybe go to, to Chinese school and not see all of that diversity, right? That's true. And she, one of the things that I was really grateful to my parents too, is that they always welcomed whoever I brought over. If I wanted yes. to bring friends over, they brought, they would welcome them without, you know, any, any judgment, no questions asked, just, you know, plain hospitality, just really happy that I had friends, you know, or my sister had friends right. and we would come over and, you know, bang on the piano and play and do all these things. And it was just great. And there were, you know, kids from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, like Indian, um, Eastern European, Jewish, Israeli, Jewish, just, you know, white or Irish Catholics, whoever, you know, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Bay area is good for that. Right. So many different kinds of people. Um, you grew and up all the great food and cuisine that comes with it. Tell yeah. me about it. Um, <laughs> you started playing the piano at an early age. Yeah. Yeah. At, um, well, it's not early for some people, but my mother read in, uh, in, in some magazines and such, they say like, well, if you start your child too young, it's kind of, you know, you're not really maximizing your, your budget for these, you know, expensive lessons. So she started me at six. I was almost oh. seven. Okay. And my sister had started, had started before me, um, about four or five, um, four or five years earlier, because that's how much older she is than me. And uh, so I had already grown up with a lot of music in the house. And my parents actually met through their mutual love of music. Hmm. So I used to go on dates and go to the movie theater to watch the opera screenings. Yeah. <laughs> so that was how they met. And so that was always in the house. You know, my parents always say that, you know, they don't necessarily play a musical instrument, but they can play the stereo exceptionally well. And that yeah. they do. And so I feel very fortunate that having grown up in that environment, music was always around me. My mother's extremely musical. So it's my father. Um, so, you know, even though they never had formal training, they can they can sing very well and my mom is an expert whistler i know that is very esoteric but she is amazing amazing and her range is like i don't know four octaves <laughs> that's impressive and, uh, whistling's hard yes, yes, she, it is she's really incredible and so in that environment it seemed it i mean i was already messing around with the piano before i started lessons formally so in having my older sister uh helen playing the piano too I had somebody to look up to always but of course there was always a part of me was like well she's playing that piece so and I've heard her practice it five billion times I don't think I want to play that piece no <laughs> but did, there were pieces that I really wanted to play too yeah. did it just fit for you because I played the piano too at an early age and for me I think it just fit I picked it up really fast I had long skinny fingers and so it just it was easy for me to play did you find the same yeah a little bit 
don't don't be too impressed. yeah you know my hands are actually they're they're quite you know it's great that you have long you know fingers and everything because my my hands are actually quite people people ask me they're like can you reach those you know 11th 13th but I've trained enough where I really can you know reach really wide right. and so you know I've trained since I was little it's um it, it's I can, I can hit some really, really high stretches, long, big stretches, but, you know, of course there are physical limitations, but it hasn't stopped me or anybody I know who has smaller hands too, um, which is great. But mm -hmm. I just absolutely loved, loved the painting the piano. I would want to finish my homework as soon as possible, as quickly as possible so that I could just spend the rest of my evening or afternoon playing the piano if my you know my sister had already finished or she would go later I just wanted to just live in the music Aww. I just wanted to work on it so it yeah. really hit you then I mean you grew up with it you were playing the piano you loved playing the piano it wasn't something that like mom and dad forced you to do you absolutely loved it so you really with music this all started so young for you Yes, yes. Just in the family, just with the music always happening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was something that I absolutely loved. There was a particular piece that I wanted to listen to. My mom said when I was two years old or something, I, I you know, wouldn't want to go take my afternoon nap unless I heard this piece. Wow. <laughs> wow. I actually do remember it. Yeah, but it's, uh, it is still one of my favorite pieces. But what is it? You know, it's just so it's um, well, it's it's by the, the French composer um, Georges Bizet. And it was from this is opera Carmen, and it's this beautiful, beautiful piece um, called the Flower Song. Oh and yeah, it's an aria, yeah, sung by uh, Don Jose, mm -hmm. the uh, the main the main characters in the opera, and it is just one of the most heartfelt and most beautiful pieces. And to this day, it's still you know instead of you know wanting to go to sleep, it makes me want to cry more for you know how beautiful it is. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's that. still very much a part of me. How fun! Yeah. So, high school for Susan Lynn. What are you? Ex what are you looking to do when you like when you grow up? What do you want to be? What does Susan want to be when she grows up? <laughs> In high school, I was spending all my time when I was. In you know, studying, I knew I had to go to college. I knew that was the thing, you know, and my family was like, you, mm -hmm. you go to college because that is how you establish a base for yourself to be able to do the things that you want to do. Um, and that's important. That's the baseline. Right. right? Uh, but I was spending all of my time that wasn't towards going to college on practicing piano, mm -hmm. playing in, uh, you know, doing competitions, um, uh, playing in jazz bands. I also learned how to play the trumpet, lots of brass instruments. I played also a baritone horn, which is low brass instrument for wind ensemble and orchestras. And wow. I played in a big band um, on trumpet and I played in jazz trios, did lots of performances, competitions. So I was, that was really what it was. I also mm -hmm. played tennis because my dad was really great tennis player and he tried to get my sister to play when when we were younger she just was like no not having it <laughs> so <laughs> I, I I really wasn't to dance so I was dancing a lot too I was studying ballet also uh and so he got me to to do tennis and so I was playing tennis for high school my high school team wow. as well busy so girl it was pretty it was pretty busy, but you know, the music was my, where I wanted to be. I just really wanted to be in everything that all the time, you know, that and, and in the dance studio as well, because music and dance inform each other so, so much. So you were looking to, yeah. did you, is that what you wanted to do then be a classical musician? You know, it was something This kind of goes back into a little bit of that, you know, Asian immigrant family thing, yeah. which is 
you go to college, you, 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 it's great that you study piano and all these things, but that's not a job. Right. 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 That's right. not what you, that's not what you aspire to. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't work so hard for you to, to be here and for you Some to work musician. hard. So that, you, so that, you know, we, we want you to have a steady income. You know, we want you to have sure. um, success. Like, what does that mean? That means, that means a corporate job a successful corporate job and you you continue to climb the ladder or you know um go into management or things like that and you know to to make matters worse or better I don't know how this is but my sister absolutely showed an aptitude and a love of medicine and and you know the 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 profession of of medicine um when she was very young Mm -hmm. and she became a doctor and that is like the pinnacle the apogee (laughs) of what you could be in that society, the doctor. And, you know, and thanks, and Helen, she's amazing. I could never, I could never do it myself. She became a neurologist. Wow. <laughs> and yes, I'm so proud of my sister. Of course. She's incredible. And she, and it's what she, she, it's what she wanted to do, you know, but, and then my parents were like, so what are you going to do? <laughs> and it was, it got to a point where like, I actually applied and got into law school because I thought if I did that, it would make them happy. But then I realized it wouldn't make me happy at all. Good for you. And I actually, I, it's a good thing I didn't go because that's a lot of investment. <laughs> it is. But, but uh, yeah, so I went into high tech. I went into high tech, um, which, which, you know, is very much a direction that they, that was success. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no regrets. I actually really, really enjoy that community. I'm still very interested in it. I'm, I, I think the world of, of, of coding and programming and all that and the innovations that happen through high tech are absolutely incredible. They, they make our everyday lives possible now. Sure. So, and that was at Google. Correct? I am so grateful. You, were, you worked at mm-hmm. Google for a while. I did. Yes. Yes. I worked for the longest chunk of time in, in, in my high tech career at Google, which was really incredible too. And I've made some lifelong friends there. Oh, I'm sure. So where did, where did wine come in? Where did this love for wine come in? Has it always been a part of your life? It has been. Okay. It has been since I was very, very young, actually, because my, my mother's father, um, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, they used to live in the United States when I was really young mm-hmm. and they would invite us over uh, for dinners and have other family members or other family friends meet for dinners. And during these dinners, my grandfather would always have a beautiful bottle of, of uh, you know, Bordeaux or Napa Cabernet blend. And he always served these beautiful brandies. I mean, he always had these wonderful bottles up there and, and I would look at the shelves and they would look so attractive and these labels, everything. I just knew there was something really special, something classy, something mysterious about it. And I always ask him, you know, what are these? Grandpa, please tell me about these. And so he started to taste, help me taste these. And he would pour little tiny bits and just taste me on them. And uh, that was how I got my first experience with, um, with, wine and spirits and I always saw how much he would bring people together and how happy people were around him he was a consummate host and he was such a generous person so was my grandmother and I remember just the convivial feeling and this magic that that a wonderful beverage Mm -hmm. can do you know to bring people together like that 
uh, I'll never forget it. And so that always stayed with me. And so it was because of my grandfather that I really got a sense of what wine was and what that magic could be. And that's where it started. And that's what stayed with me and sort of been the root of all my wine studies um, throughout yeah, throughout my life, I just kind of studied it on my own a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, you know, and when I was, when I was playing um, the piano, like the first jobs that I had when I was a kid um, was from playing the piano. And eventually I got some gigs, you know, at restaurants and in, you know, hotel lobbies or, you know, bars and things like that. So I was playing sometimes in bars where I was way underage to even otherwise be in, <laughs> which was very interesting. I didn't realize this until later, but <laughs> I would see again. I would see again this, you know, this the wonderful quality of hospitality, right? What hospitality could do to, you know, people enjoying their time together over a bottle of wine, over a glass of wine, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so again, that really, really, really emphasized that point to me. Uh, and then later when uh, I was working in high tech, I thought, well, you know, I, I'm loving the study of wine, but I want to try to give myself more of, a, more of an academic framework through which to focus my studies, because that's just how I am. <laughs> I like doing things that way. Um, I'm picking up so on that. I, yeah. <laughs> so I started doing research, and that's where I found uh, the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, the WSET, and that's based out of London, and said, yeah, let's give this a try. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for that, and this was, gosh, I don't know, maybe like 20... 13. Okay. So I took my first, I took my first wine class in, in 2013, I think. Yeah. December. And then uh, when I got to the WSET level three, um, my, I, well, I was one of the only people in the class who was, a, who was not an in industry actually. Um, and mm-hmm. my study partner who became, you know, a lifelong friend, you know, after a while he, uh, he, he spoke to his, his, his boss about me and they recruited me. Nice. <laughs> and I thought, wow, what an, I was so honored, you know, I really was. And I just thought, wow, what an, an opportunity. I, I, I don't know. And so I just, I thought about it and I was a little scared and everything, but I thought I'm just going to dive into this. And I, I am never been happier. Absolutely. It was, it was good timing. It really was. Yeah. The, the universe and maybe grandpa was looking out for you at that point, And he was like, this is where you need to be in this world of this world of wine and, and hospitality. I love, I love that grandpa influenced all of that. He absolutely is still with me every day. And uh, I'm really, really happy that he actually was still uh, alive at the time when I had made that transition and I was able to share with him. He had moved back to, he and my grandmother had moved back to Shanghai at that point. And um, I wrote him a, a big letter with, and sent him, you know, all the, my business card and everything. And you know, mm. I told him about what I was doing. And the letter that he wrote back to me is so precious to me. Yeah. It's what did, really, what did he really, say? Really... I'm, I'm assuming he was incredibly proud. Yes. Yes. And he just said, you know, you, you live the life that, you know, that you want to live. You know, I've tried my, my whole life. He said, you know, to work hard, to be able to, to do the things that I would like to do, but there are a lot of constraints in life. You try to do the best by them and you do the best by those for whom you are responsible. But at the same time, you know, you do what you want to do. And I'm so proud that you are doing that and you are working towards that. And it just, it means the world to me. Um, Yeah, that's so touching, Susan. So touching. I absolutely love that story. So you're, you're taking, you're taking these classes. You're really, it sounds like getting hooked 
as far as like learning about wine and all of these things, you have this opportunity, you take yes. it. And then at this point, was it just like full steam ahead for you in this, in this world, trying to learn as much as you could about wine? Yes. The word hooked is good one. Yeah. You know it. <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> um, I, I, once I got started, I didn't want to stop. Yeah. I just didn't want to stop because I love learning. And that's the same thing, you know, with, with, you know, learning how to play the piano or anything, even if you have played a piece that you've known for 10 years, if I play it again, and if I keep working at it, I will discover new things about it all the time. It's incredible. So in the world of wine keeps changing too. So I am absolutely a lifelong student. That's there's always so much to learn about people say like, Oh, now that you're a master of wine, you're done. Like, no, it's not about that. It's a lifestyle. You know, it's just about learning is a lifestyle and, and curiosity. And that's what makes this world so, so wonderful. You know, even though there's a lot of things in this world that could be much better or things that make us scared or sad or very concerned. There's so much wonderful about this world. It's about perspective too in a lot of ways, I think. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Always learning. Well, the the goal is to always keep learning, right? If you if you yeah. ever just stop, I mean, that's basically like giving up, in my opinion. Like you always you're all we're always changing. We're always evolving. We're always learning new things and meeting new people. And um, yeah. So I agree with you. Always. You you can't ever slow down and just stop and say, I'm done. Cause that just doesn't exist. I do have a, a question as far as how music comes into all of this, because I know it's your love. You absolutely love playing the piano and now you're finding this new love within wine. Where did those two intersect? It's the intersect in different ways. I mean, obviously there's the, there's the experience of it and, and the, the end product of both, you know, the, the, com the completed piece, the completed wine and how the, the perception uh, the experience that happens when the two intersect there. There's that, which is the basis of uh, my, the goals of a lot of my research that I do now and the projects and experiments that I do now. Mm -hmm. um, but even during the, the practicing or the learning process, so to speak, the training of tasting wines uh, and learning wines, the training of learning how to play the piano, how to learn pieces, there's a lot of similarity and synergy there actually. And I think the discipline of the training uh, really informed the other. And so obviously I grew up, you know, training in, uh, in learning musical instruments and the discipline that comes from that, the repetition, the, the, the finding of patterns, you know, the, the, the muscle memory, right. That actually occurs with that actually really applies to tasting wine. There is a real muscle memory about tasting wine too, yes. although that might sound a little bit weird, but in terms of, you know, you do have like a, um, like a, a taste and aroma sense, uh, that becomes part of your library. And that in and of itself, I believe is very much like a muscle memory. And so when you, when you get these certain inputs, um, you'll start to be able to, your neurons start firing off about all the things that you have learned and studied throughout, but you have to go about it in a way that is that same sort of repetition, that training each time you build upon it, each time you do a little bit more research, each time you understand a little bit more of what you do know and what you don't know. Right. And that's, and I think those two disciplines really, really meet in that way. And that my, certainly my music training helped me with my own guiding guidance of myself in learning how to taste wine and how to 
taste blind and how to taste uh, for, you know, 100 wines a day, you know, for for judging events and such without with, without pooping out and without, you know, losing your sound judgment and staying being able to stay really objective. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's hard work. You know, I think a lot of people say like, oh, yeah, you taste wine. That's that's that must be amazing. That's just like best job ever. I'm like, yeah, it, it's it is the best job ever. But it's also it's also takes a lot of training and discipline and it takes a lot of endurance. You do have to train for it kind of like, you know, an endurance athlete does. Right. You know, and, and same with like a piano. He's um if you're doing a full piano recital, you know, over an hour, hour and a half, or even two hours, it's a lot of endurance. And it's not just physical, but that is a component of it. It's really mental, really, really mental. And so both those things you really have to work at. Uh, and it's no different for, for, uh, you know, wine tasting and wine competitions. No, you're, you're right. It is so funny. The muscle memory that you brought up. Cause I was thinking that in my head that in my little tiny freckle of experience with wine, um, when you're smelling maybe the same varietal over and over and over and over again, and you're picking up the same, you know, maybe the same nose, or maybe there's like, um, something about it that just keeps occurring to you and you keep tasting, let's just say one varietal over and over again, that's the muscle memory, yeah. right? That you're just like, oh, it should smell like this. It should taste like this. Or if it's coming from this particular region, they all have this like underlying, you know, something about them. So you're right. Like Absolutely. The, the more that you're sniffing and tasting, I mean, it all starts to like come together, I would assume at some point. It does. It does. It's pretty amazing when it does too, especially like when you're, you know, you, <laughs> you're finally saying like, oh, I get it. This is what makes, you know, Albarino Albarino for me, you know, but then, yeah. So, you know, that for you. And then the next part of the challenge is how do you, how do you express it and translate it in a way so that somebody who doesn't have those internal memories that you have uh, and those references can understand what the wine smells like, looks like, tastes like, how it feels in the mouth, all those things, right. right? In a way that it's objective and that other people can understand, right? That's that's actually a, a really big challenge. And that's what I think the, the master of wine discipline um, really teaches you to do. It's, it's uh, how to look at a wine very objectively for its category, for its target audience. And is it good quality within that range, right? It's not just that, oh, quality wine is a really expensive wine. It's a wine that, you know, is, sells for um, six to seven figures on the, you know, on, right. on the uh, investment market, right? On the secondary market. That is one measure of quality, but there is a more holistic and I think a more objective measure of quality. Um, and the ability to describe a wine in objective terms in such a way that, you know, people will not understand if you say, well, this wine smells like, you know, my grandmother's linen closet. That's great for you as a marker. That's great for your muscle memory, right? But nobody else is going to get that. So <laughs> you have to be able to translate it for people in a way that makes sense. And that actually can fluctuate depending on who you're talking to, because culturally, people have different taste senses, right? Mm -hmm. So people in, in Japan maybe aren't going to be able to say, okay, well, um, elderberries and bramble, okay, what, what is that? <laughs> they will have different markers. And so uh, being more culturally uh, aware in those realms is also really important as we want to share, right? If we want to share anything. And that's the wonderful thing about wine itself too, just like with music and dance, is just that it will communicate to 
people, even if you don't speak the same language in and of itself, because there's something shared there. But in the description of wine, uh, you can describe feelings for sure. But in, when you're talking about descriptors, like, oh, is it quince? Is it, um, is it uh, you know, cranberries? Is it leather, hay? All those things. Some of those words may not translate, you know, to folks in from other, you know, upbringings and different right. societies. And so that's heard, also a great challenge. I heard you, I think during the competition, I think it was you maybe who said there was a, there was a smell of like, um, was it gerbil shaving? Like gerbil That shavings? was me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cedar, cedar hamster shavings. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, and I remember I was kind of like, at that point it was toward, towards the end of the competition and I'm zoning out just a little bit. And I heard that and my ears were like, wait, what, what, what did you just say? That was so funny. I loved that. Um, so I wouldn't normally put that on like a formal tasting note, but with, within a discussion with my fellow judges, it was really, it, you know, it was useful at the time. <laughs> it was great. It, it was great. And the thing I love about that, and even hearing all of you guys, when you're talking about descriptors, all the judges, um, it, it took me there. Like you, you would say something like this really has this whatever kind of nose to it. Sometimes I would be transported there. I would be like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. And it's so interesting how smells really can transplant you. Um, when I first moved to Southern Oregon, that's really where I started to get into wine. And there was a, a wine that I drank a lot. I want to say it was like a Merlot. And years later, I had a Merlot from the Applegate Valley and I was 22 years old again. I was like having all of those feelings of just moving to a new place and starting a new job. And I could just, I was there. I was back in this like young girl body going, oh my God, I this smells like the first wines that I've ever tried. And it was, um, it, it's just, an, it's really wild to me how your senses, right? What you smell, what you taste really can send you back to a certain place. It always reminds me of the movie Ratatouille when he tastes the Ratatouille and he's like yes. transform, yeah. right? He's like a, a little kid in mom's kitchen and it's so comforting, but yeah, yeah. it's just, it, it is really wild to me. It is. It is so powerful. The olfactory senses can are one of the most powerful to bring us back to a particular time and place to a particular feeling to a particular, you know, it's, our senses are absolutely amazing too. I mean, it can transport us, like you use that word transporting. And I think that really kind of segues into the other part of how wine and music intersect because when you said, oh, you know, we you heard us describe the wine in a certain way and you were, weren't even tasting or smelling the wine, but you were transported in a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is the power of priming right, in, in psychology and in cognitive neuroscience, they call this concept of priming, right? If you, you know, if you go to a football stadium, and they're playing loud music, they're trying to pump up the crowd, you know, cheer, get the excitement going, that's priming, right? Why do they have that kind of like, you know, anthem music going yeah. on? You know, it's, it's, it's to get us feeling excited. It's getting us to, you know, so again, getting, hearing even su the suggestion of like, oh, this wine smells like, you know, already does something, right? So imagine, what it's like to be listening to music mm -hmm. while you're also smelling and tasting wines. Yes. It didn't. It's this priming effect. Right? Yeah. It, it so didn't really click. It's super, it's super powerful. It didn't click until you just said that, because I think when we think about wine, I, you, looking at it, smelling it, 
obviously all of that makes sense, but I never thought to include hearing something at the same time. So you've done extensive research in how, how music affects really how wine tastes. Is that an accurate the perception, it affects our perceptions okay. of how wine tastes. It's not actually, you know, we, we're not changing any of the chemicals in the wine. Nothing's that, you know, there's no, no special magical thing where the music comes and actually, you gotcha. know, changes the, the, the wine itself and how it tastes. But it, if it does seem all the research that has been done and mine does corroborate the research uh, that what we listen to while we're drinking our wine does have an influence on how we perceive that wine to smell, to taste, or even feel in our mouth. And it's really, really fascinating to me because it has so many important implications on the presentation of wine for, for brands, right? You know, if they, they wanna, you can use different musical elements as levers, you know, to, to pull out different elements of the wine that you want people to, to perceive, you know, that work with your brand, right? Or um, tasting experiences on-premise, like tasting rooms, what's that playlist going to look like? Or your on-premise experience, like your wine bar or your restaurant, how are you going to pace it out through the day, a.m., you know, noon, p.m., like happy hour to party time? Yeah. What all those mean, what that means, all these things. So bringing together like what we call retail atmospherics in that realm, um, how people consume food and wine beverages, depending what kind of music they hear, like how fast or the music is, how loud the music is, how high pitched, how low pitched, all those things can affect what people do and their consumption choices. Right. So this is really big, you know, economic impacts, uh, potentials on businesses. And so for wine, what, what I found, you know, um, in my study on, which was titled the influences of classical music on the perception of a brute non-vintage champagne, mm-hmm. I had 81 participants across eight separate groups of about equal size. And I was sort of like a one woman road show. I was bringing, I was bringing my little Apple HomePod stereo smart stereo speakers with me everywhere and I had all all my glasses and then all the wines and I'd have to be like you know they have, everything was blind people who came had no idea what they had they, they had no idea what this was about they just knew what it involved wine <laughs> and they would get to taste wine so they didn't know anything about it and it was just so interesting you know I, I had four pieces of classical music that were carefully chosen for um, different uh, elements so if you had a quadrant of like, you know, slow, fast, okay. you know, powerful, lighthearted, you know, so all the different musical elements that would make each piece fit in one of those quadrants. And then I would have silence as a control, right? So there were five glasses and five sound conditions, the silence and four pieces of music. And they were completely randomized with a specific pattern across all the different groups. So you wouldn't get any bias for right. um was, or whatever you heard first or second or things like that. Yeah. Was this and, the study uh, you did yeah. with the Vouv? Yes. Okay. Yes. And the thing is, is that I had people who were just social wine drinkers, love wine, don't study it, you know? And then people who are like master wine students, people in the industry, really incredible people, you know, um, master Psalms, masters of wine. And really almost everybody, the vast majority of people absolutely were convinced that each glass had a different wine in it. 
crazy. Each piece, isn't that amazing though? Like, it's just mind blowing to me. I mean, and these were really smart people, people who had studied wine for, and it, and it was evenly split. I even did this, ran the statistical analysis across just the social drinkers and just the, <laughs> and just the wine experts, and then cross-referenced them with the entire statistical analysis. And it was statistically significant. I mean, it was really incredible how, um, you know, some of these things that people observed were the perceptions were of, you know, not only were they different wines, um, the <laughs> the one the one wine in every flight that was accompanied by silence was the worst. <gasps> really? I think that has really implications because it was not only the flattest one, because we're talking about we need to look at how bubbly this wine is, right? You know, it's it's sparkling. So it was not only the, the flattest, it was the most bitter and acidic. It was the least fruity. It was Whoa. the least rich. It was the least complex. And it, it was just people didn't like it either. <laughs> I had another I had another marker for how much you liked the wine, you know, and it was incredible. That was really, really incredible. And, you know, even if people didn't like the, the music, it, the, the wine still performed well. People still liked the wine and, it, and the wine was like way better than when the wine was tasted in silence. That's and they were like, this wine sucked. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. In fact, the article that I read said basically all of the participants, but one believed they were tasting um, di five different wines when in fact it was the same, the same glass of bubbles. Everybody had the same vuv in every single glass. Yes. Crazy. And I controlled for the glasses. I controlled for the wines. I made sure they were all at the same temperature open state. I tested each one beforehand. Like everything was, I recorded temperatures, recorded everything just to make sure, you know, later yeah. if I needed to run numbers on differences that, you know, but yeah, it was really, 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 really interesting. And um, what was also extremely interesting was that uh, the different elements of the music, like, you know, what I was mentioning tempo um, volume, you know, how, how smooth or how jumpy the pieces uh, versus, you know, how lighthearted or how, how, you know, um, powerful or passionate the piece sounds, you know, forceful versus like lighthearted and, um, and happy things like that. You know, it really made a difference too, statistically speaking in terms of how people perceived the amount of effervescence in the wine. Right. So again, we're talking about the same wine, five different glasses, wow. but for the two pieces where it was faster, te faster tempo, uh, and higher pitched throughout and, had a jumpy articulation, what we call a dynamic articulation versus smooth and long tones. Those were perceived as much more effervescent, much more vibrant, much more exciting. Wow. And so, you know, any of the pieces where even though they thought it was less bubbly because like the piece with the long smooth lines, slower tempo, really stately, powerful, they thought like, wow, you know, these pieces, the, the, these wines aren't very, they're not very bubbly but they're really fruity and they're really rich. And Same this did, does, does corroborate some of the research done on still wines mm -hmm. from the amazing uh, researchers and scientists and food analysis scientists coming out of Oxford University, like Charles Spence. Right. 
and, um, and Janice Wong at Aarhus University who had worked with um, Dr. Spence as well, who have been invaluable resources to me as I was putting together, you know, my research. And I read everything that they have published <laughs> plus many, many other, other scientists um, to make sure that my research would help uh, continue to build off of the wonderful work that they have done and are doing. And it did corroborate some of their research, but with the added, you know, focus on sparkling wines for which I was flabbergasted, there wasn't very much published research about. So I really right. want this to be a jumping off point, you know, saying like, well, if we want to, you know, have fast, fast paced, higher pitched, dynamic articulation, you know, exciting pieces um, to really bring out uh, the, the the bubbles and the freshness and the vitality of a, of a brut non vintage champagne. Let's just think about how we could, you know, bring out the fruitier elements or the, the, or the, the richer elements of a vintage champagne that's been on the lees, you know, for eight years and, and see what kind of piece, you know, the combination of those musical elements in a piece could help really bring that out for a different cuvee in wow. somebody's brand. Fascinating. You know, so many possibilities, so yeah. many possibilities. And the other cool thing is the um, other research that I've done and some projects that I've been doing since this um, research paper was published is that, uh, seems like it's really not dependent on on genre so if 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 my puccini you know is your metallica it's still you can look at you can look at these different elements musical same musical elements or musical parameters the tempo the the volume the the powerfulness the gentleness the lightness the you know all those things and still be able to use those as levers mm. to bring out what you want to bring out in in, uh, in your wines and in the experience of the perception of those wines. And I think this is just so wonderful. I mean, like just for me, I, I do little, you know, silly experiments on myself all the time. You know, I'll, I'll take, I'll, I'll take a, a wine that's like $6 from Corbiere, you know, or something just some people would say oh this is a wonderful wine you know it's just great for every day some people might even call it you know like a van de soif or a porch pounder or whatever right. you know nice simple wine but the moment i put on like astor piazzola's libertango like oh wow you know spicy depth you know richness all those things you know it's just even nobody is immune even though i know what i'm testing myself on even i, I can't get away from it you know okay. it just it's the combination of these things. And I think that's the best, like I coming from, you know, a place like engineering and Google too, I, I love data and I love analysis. I love science. And I think we should always keep trying to do the research and to be able to have a reason to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to invest some money into doing this so that my, you know, I, I can have data behind it before I spend money. But at the same time, I think it's like, again, the best thing about life, there's always going to be a mystery, a je ne sais quoi, something that we'll never understand about why we love what we love in terms of tasting wine and music and all that and what happens, the magic that happens therein, because that's just part of the mystery of it all. And I think there will always be that element of mystery. I'll keep studying it and I'll keep finding data, but I think we should embrace that. We should embrace that, Hell yeah. you know, wonderful mystery of life because that's what makes life wonderful too. I so agree. <laughs> this it's so <laughs> your, your experiment, reminds me of a science project I did back in the 10th grade. It's highly, highly scientific, Susan, where I took different kinds of bubble gum to see which one blew the biggest bubble. Nice. Right? I got honorable yes. mention for that bad boy 
But no, I'm totally kidding, obviously. But yes, I love I love the fact that you because it's not you're not necessarily the first person to focus on how music affects your perception of wine, but you are one of the first to focus in on bubbles and really how the perception of, of sparkling wine and and how it tastes in your glass with this music. And so I love the fact that you had this awesome idea to bring in all of these people and play music. And I mean, at the end of it, were you just like score? There it is. Like here's, here's my data. Like I, this is exactly what I was looking for. It, you know, a lot of it surprised me too, because really? I, I mean, I, when I was, I spent a whole month just crunching the data and I was like, what if this tells me nothing, but that will tell us something. I'll have to write my paper based on it. You have to make sure you don't fall in love with what you, you know, what oh. you want to happen, you know, and really try to stay away from that and just let the data speak because you don't want to manipulate any of that by based on what you want to to, to learn and so, or, or it to come out to be. Um, and that can be hard, that can be hard, but I, I, I worked really hard to do that. I was terrified that the data would just be like a complete mess and tell me nothing. But, you know, it, it told me a lot of things, which was really, really fascinating, corroborating some of the research that was done before, some new interesting things about the, you know, the, the what, what made the perception of sparkling, the effervescence higher, mm-hmm. that was really fascinating. And the other thing was that surprised me about the data was just that, you know, people even wondered about this aloud in the post feedback, se- the session feedback is, hey, you know what, I know that piece and I, I really don't like it. I-, I wonder how much it affected my liking of the wine, you know, or like, I really love this piece. I'm just going to love this wine. There was no statistically significant effect at all, whether people liked or didn't like the piece. Hmm. It was still a lovely wine. They still loved it. It was still greater than a five on the scale from one to nine, but the wine without music universally sucked. (laughs) That is powerful. You know, that is powerful. No, that's, that's absolutely powerful. Um, where can people, and I just want to say I'm, I consider myself a little bit of a wine nerd, but we, you and I just reached a level of like wine nerdiness. I don't think we've, I I've hit ever. So thank you. It's so refreshing <laughs> and so fun. So just a couple of wine nerds over here geeking out over wine and music. Where can people read um, read some of your research? Is your website the best the best spot? Yeah, actually, um, my website, which is susanarlin.com, is it has the section on some publications. And so you can find the link there. The first link is for, for the paper that I wrote, the research paper that I wrote, right. which we were talking about, um, which is on the site of the Masters of Wine. So it's on their research paper site. And so um, you can find that there, but if you want like the TLDR, like to, you know, you just want the summary of it, the decanter article that you mentioned and some other articles, um, will be absolutely uh, easier to digest. And I also actually have, if you are a member of the French uh, French Wine Scholar, no, the Wine Scholar Guild, pardon me. For the Wine Scholar Guild, there's actually a um, webinar that I did and it has a presentation with graphs and everything that I, you can actually see, you know, some of this, um, some of the effects of the, of, of the findings that I found um, of the music on the, on the perception right. of the wine. Yeah. So but but your it, website, yeah, you do have articles. Um, you do have articles that yes. feature you on your website. So agree. Yes. If, if people just kind of want to dip their toe in, <laughs> that might, might be Absolutely. the good place to start. <laughs> yeah. 
Awesome. Um, well, I want to wrap up just a little bit, but I feel like you and I could probably talk about wine and music for a really long time. I, I am excited. We talked a little bit about in the beginning of this interview, you know, Oregon wine competition, the Oregon wine experience, actually when this airs, will have just launched the medal celebration. So everybody will know who won. Um, so the next morning, this interview will launch, but we're right in the middle of Oregon wine experience. I'm just curious for the competition, um, you know, the things that you were tasting, I know I asked you a little bit, but you guys were impressed with Oregon wine. It's safe to say. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the quality, the uh, just, I was blown away by how much experimentation there is going on and how well it's being done. Mm -hmm. uh, just visiting one, one estate that had 17 different varieties planted and the amount of care that it took to, to raise those 17 different varieties because they all need something different. Right. It's pretty incredible. And what they were doing with it, I mean, first of all, I know everybody was talking about how wonderful the, the Syrah wines were. And I absolutely agree with that. But what really actually caught my attention too was the Albarino, mm -hmm. um, different ways of, of presenting Albarino, not just um, stainless steel, but also concrete, also barrel fermented, different expressions thereof, just so refreshing and so characterful on the different types of sparkling wines that would be experimented on, the types of really wacky blends of different, you know, white grapes and red grapes as well. I, I just think that it's it, it's going to be really wonderful for people to start learning more about what's happening in Southern Oregon. And as, as there is climate change, I think mm -hmm. the success of, of Northern Oregon, where, you know, some of the most famous wine regions are, you know, of course, the Lamette Valley and, and all the sub-appellations therein can really, they can, learn together to see you know as perhaps someday in the future it might be a little bit too warm for for those varieties up in the north or maybe you can find different ways of doing it and people can swap uh, information and see you know how Oregon wines can grow stronger as a result of that and be even more unique agreed and I think it is it's a beautiful relationship even right now um, you know, there's a lot of producers up north that get grapes from down south and probably you know vice versa so, um, I would say that it's a it's a beautiful relationship and hopefully it just grows stronger with Oregon producers. Yes, and the northern the, the grapes from the north, I mean grapes, the wines from the north showed absolutely beautifully. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, well, very <laughs> excited that you were down here with other judges. And again, it was my first my first taste of a judges competition being kind of behind the scenes and <laughs> talk about a nerd. I was geeking out so hard. I remember sending a text and I'm just to my husband and I'm just like, Oh my God, I'm in heaven. This is so awesome. Just watching the process, <laughs> listening to you guys talk about these wines and what you liked and what you didn't like. I just, I learned so much. And then it was just really fascinating to watch how you all taste and spit and then taste again and swish. And so it was really cool. It was really fascinating. Well, was, we, were, we were so happy to have you there. Your your energy was just is just absolutely infectious and wonderful. And I can't imagine the event without you. Aww. Absolutely not. Susan, thank <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, uh, Joe Camerlingi, who put the video together, we were just talking about him. Um, I told him, I said, one year, let's just do a video of the judges just spitting the entire time. Just like <laughs> like a video just of you guys like spitting all this wine out. Because it's a lot. It's a that lot. was what I was worried about. I was worried that every time, like, you know, the video camera got to me or the picture, it was me spitting. <laughs> because... 
rest assured all of that was cut out yes we we made we made you guys look really really good joe made you guys look really really good but yeah um again mm-hmm. just things that i didn't i knew were part of a competition but it just really opened my eyes to how you guys get through all of those flights of wine it's just so much and it's all day like i don't think people are aware it's like you were saying oh, it'll be fun to sip wine, taste wine, whatever. You guys are tasting this all day long and you have to have, you have to be objective for every single flight. Yeah, um, objective, sharp, you know, non-judgmental and bringing yep. your best self to it, to, to you and your fellow colleagues. You know, it's really important. It yeah, is. I take it very seriously. We all do. You do. Yes, you absolutely do. And that, yeah. was, um, that was really awesome to see as well. Okay, we're going to wrap up and get to the final three. Um, I believe I sent you these, uh, best advice you've ever been given. You know, I had a hard time with this. I have to admit because there's so many, but I think one of the, one of the best ones that, uh, that I think has helped me a lot in life is actually a quote from Bruce Lee, the, the martial artist and philosopher. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm paraphrasing here from the Chinese. So I think it's, it, it, it's a defeat is a state of mind. No one is ever defeated unless one believes that one is defeated. Mm, nice. Bruce. Right. That's good. And I, you know, for somebody who has tried lots of different things in life and fallen down or hit the wall and just, you know, gotten up that it's very much, it's very much resonates with me and I know well for the rest of my life. And nice. I think it's true. Again, we're tying it back to, it's a, a lot about perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, we can empower ourselves or defeat ourselves right in our own mind with our 100 conversations that we have with ourselves. <laughs> I have a lot of conversations with myself. So yes, I agree with that. Um, great. That's awesome advice. Uh, what's your happy place? My happy place is when I'm sitting at the piano and I feel like I'm in a state of flow and I can just bring out everything that I want to bring out in this piece in the moment. And I feel like nothing can stop me and it's the best feeling in the world. Mm, I love that. Okay. Um, in all things food and drink, what do you crave? What always sounds good to you? A double stocked baked potato with gru- lots of gruyere and chives, lots of oregano, lots of herbs, um, and and a glass of champagne. Yeah, <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> or <laughs> duck fat fries, champagne, or usually their potatoes is a theme. <laughs> Yes, honey. Yes. It's like, it's French fries, truffle fries, truffle potato chips, and a glass of bubbles. That is me all the way, all the way. I can't wait till we can get together in person again next time. Please. And we're going to have such a good time. Yeah. No work next time. No work. We're going to play next time. We're going to go, we're going to go drink bubbles somewhere. I don't feel this is work. This, I hope you don't feel like this is either. This is fantastic. I've been looking forward to speaking with you again and to seeing you again. And, uh, you know, um, I, I look forward to when we can get together. And in the meantime, I will try your meatballs recipe Okay. that I found on your website. I love the fact that it's just meatballs in all caps with an exclamation point at the end. <laughs> I, I was do, like, this woman loves meatballs. This is great. I'm going to try this. <laughs> I love a good meatball. They're just so perfect and compact and you have all of the stuff in there. And if there's a good sauce with it, like that's all you need sometimes. It's just a really good meatball. I love, I love making meatballs. I love eating meatballs. Yes. So I'm excited. 
hence the <laughs> all caps and exclamation point meatballs. Yes. I, I can't wait to, to try making it. Thank you for all the recipes that you have on your oh, site. Oh, Susan, thank you. Thank, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your brain with us. And um, I got, you know, I dipped my toes in the water of all of your research, but I'm excited to go back and really dig in. And now when I'm drinking wine at the end of the day, I'm going to be really thinking about what kind of music I'm going to play with it. Yeah. Experiment, you know, try different things, I will. try different things and just, see, and just see how you feel. And you know what, in, in, at the end, even if you like it or not, it'll make, it'll make things more interesting. <laughs> so absolutely, that, that's a start. All right. Well, yeah. Susan Lynn, again, thank you so much for being here with me today. Um, just really excited honor to be that you mm-hmm. just shared all of your stuff, shared your brain with all of us, smarty pants. And I'm just excited to see what you do in the future. And I'm excited to see you again. So we'll make it happen. I sure hope so. We will make it happen. Thank you very much, Trish. You've been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Glose. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More and Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.